Good morning, Freedom Village. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I'm excited to be able to share this Christmas message with you this morning. Today we're going to be talking about the song of the angels. So we looked at the song of Mary in the first week of the series, and then we looked at, I'm sorry, we looked at her incredible faith, this incredible faith of a teenage girl. We looked at the song of Zechariah last week and the incredible lack of faith from a priest, right? But he is shown grace. He is given time to repent and, and more than nine months to, to reflect on his mistake and uh, to believe and to be corrected. So anyway, now we're going to talk about the song of the angels and what that means for us. But uh, before we do, I'd like to pray. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for this special time of year. I thank you that we have the opportunity to set aside basically a month to celebrate the birth of your son, the Messiah, and, and to celebrate what his coming means for all people. This is not an easy year, God. This is not an easy time. We pray for your strength. We pray that you would fill us with the hope that the Christmas season brings. Your son came to show us how much you love us. He came to die for us, and he came to rise again and to bring new life to anyone who calls on your name. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for each of us now. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we heard uh, part of the passage, but actually I'd like you to open your Bible uh, or your apps, because we're actually going to be talking through Luke 2, 1 to 20, quite a large passage this morning, so it's good for you to have that in front of you. So I want to begin this morning with the shepherds. Let me turn this on. Who were the shepherds? The shepherds in this, pic- in this period actually had an unsavory reputation, And that's kind of a strange thing to consider because some of Israel's greatest heroes were shepherds, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, right? They were all shepherds. And this time of Israel's history, most shepherds um, actually took care of sheep far away in the wilderness, so they were kind of secluded from people, and people kind of regarded them as dishonest and thieving. Shepherds could not be witnesses in court. They could not fulfill a judicial office, and they could not enter the temple. So basically, they were very low on the social chain, and and they were considered unclean. So our passage today says that the shepherds were abiding in the field, and the Greek word here for abiding means camping out. They were camping out. They're most likely living in tents. Um, so you can kind of imagine that they wouldn't smell very nice, and you can kind of see why they may have been considered unclean. But we're going to see today, a little, a little bit later, that to God, that doesn't matter. Those kinds of things don't matter. Um, so Luke also says that they were keeping watch over the flock by night. They were guarding the sheep from thieves and from wild animals, as well as making sure that the sheep didn't wander off on their own. So these shepherds, they may have been considered unclean, but they still had a very important job. These particular shepherds were actually 
not far off in the wilderness like most of them were. I said that most shepherds were far away from towns, but actually these shepherds are a little bit different. It says in our passage that they were in the fields nearby. So nearby where? Well, before verse 8, in verses 1 through 7, we're, we're told about the birth of Jesus. We're told that Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, and so they were nearby Bethlehem. And actually, there's an old Jewish book um, called the Misnah from A.D. 200, and it's kind of a collection of oral tradition. And what that book says is, is that shepherds who were raising sheep close to Bethlehem were usually shepherds that raised sheep for temple sacrifices. So these were most likely shepherds that raised sacrificial lambs. That's interesting, right? These, were the, these are the shepherds to whom the angels announce the birth of Jesus, the last sacrificial lamb needed on our behalf. If you remember, um, in the summer, we, we did a, a series on the parables, and Jesus, on more than one occasion, he teaches or he tells his parable, and then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He was talking about people who truly listen and who truly understand. Um, and do you remember the parable of the sower? We didn't actually talk about the parable of the sower in the summer, but I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. In the parable of the sower, in the good soil, the word of God bears fruit, right? The seed grows, unlike some of the other soil where the seeds do not grow or do not bear fruit. So these shepherds were ready to hear. They had ears to hear. Whether or not they were actually shepherds raising sacrificial lambs or just normal everyday shepherds, um, they still shouldn't have been chosen to receive this kind of news. By our worldly standards, they shouldn't have been chosen for this kind of honor. Um, but they were chosen. They did receive this, this news. And God did choose these shepherds. Um, shepherds looking after temple sacrifices or regular shepherds, it doesn't matter. They, it doesn't matter. They were both unclean jobs in that day, but God chose them anyway. He, uh, God doesn't care about outward appearance. God cares about what's inside here in our hearts, right? And we know that because of what the Bible says. For example, in Matthew 23, it's, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." And then 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 29 says, God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. God is not concerned with outward beauty. God is not concerned with outward cleanliness. God is concerned with what's in here. That's the cleanliness that he's looking for. That's the beauty that's important to him. So the kingdom of God doesn't work the way that kingdoms on earth work. 
God's kingdom is completely different than how we're used to seeing things work on earth back then and now. In our kingdoms, we expect people of status to be chosen for honor and position and glory. We expect the rich to be favored over the poor, right? Who's going to receive these COVID vaccines first, the rich countries or the poor countries? The rich countries, right? So the world and the kingdoms of the world are completely different than how God does things. The first shall be last, Jesus tells the Pharisees. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That's a shocking statement. He's saying this to the religious leaders of Israel. And who did Jesus choose for disciples? He chose fishermen. He chose a fundamentalist. He chose a tax collector. These weren't people that would have been chosen to be disciples of a rabbi. They weren't people that deserved to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him, but they were chosen. So what does this say about the kingdom of God? It tells us that you don't enter the kingdom of heaven because of your position. You enter the kingdom of heaven because of your willingness to follow. Let me say that again. You don't enter the kingdom of heaven because of your position. You enter because of your willingness to follow. Jesus asked these people to follow, and they did. Maybe they didn't know at the time that Jesus was the Messiah, but they knew that he was someone worth following. Seek me, and you will find me, Jesus says. Knock, and the door will be opened. The shepherds were chosen to receive this good news, and what did they do? They received it. They had ears to hear And they not only received the good news about Jesus, but they sought him. They went to look for him in Bethlehem, right? Seek me and you will find me. And they did. Okay. We'll come back to the shepherds a little bit later, but I want to talk about the angels now. Who were these angels? Um, Well, I think most of us know that angels are messengers of God. Um, angels bring the message of God. We see throughout the Bible that the role of an angel is to be a messenger for God. We, we, what did we see um, the last two Sundays? We saw exactly that, right? An angel appears to Mary and to Zechariah. And actually in Matthew, it tells us that the angel appeared to Joseph as well. And, and what did these angels do? They brought messages from God, Right? It's kind of funny that they almost always start with, do not be afraid. Um, maybe it's not that funny. If, if, if we were to encounter an angel, I'm sure we would all be very, very scared. Anyway, um, an angel appears to the shepherds, and he tells them not to be afraid because they were terrified. And we're not told who this first angel was that visited the shepherds, but maybe that's not that important. Maybe the important thing here is the message. And this angel has a very important message. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. This news was to be proclaimed to everyone. So again, we're not told who this angel, this first angel was, but after he announces the good news, a whole host of angels or an army of angels appears. It's not just for, it's not 
enough for just one angel to announce this event, right? It has to be big. It has to be grandiose because this is the most important event in human history. Back then and even now, when a king or some kind of royalty is born, there's someone whose job it is to announce it. But this is the king. And so it starts with a single angel and the glory of the Lord all around this angel, which is a pretty big thing in itself. One commentator says that the glory of the Lord was probably like the blinding light that Saul saw on the road to Damascus. So an angel and the glory of the Lord, and then the whole sky is filled with angels. I mean, everywhere you look, and they're singing the most beautiful song you've ever heard in your life. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This reminds me um, of another joyous event when Jesus was entering Jerusalem and the crowds couldn't contain themselves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, Jesus, rebuke them. They're calling you the Messiah. But what does Jesus say? He says, if they kept quiet, the rocks would cry out. This joy and this praise can't be contained. And likewise, the angels could not contain themselves that night near Bethlehem. They exploded with praise. And it's catchy. The shepherds are excited too, right? As soon as the angels leave, they want to see for themselves. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Before we get there, before we get to the shepherds' response, I want to talk about the meaning of this angel's song. What are they actually singing about? Glory to God in the highest. We sang that today, actually. David chose appropriately. In excelsis Deo is Latin for glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, the glory of the God part is pretty easy to understand. God has sent his son, the Messiah, into the world. And he's done it in the most unexpected and miraculous way. Jesus is both man and God. And he is the glory of God. He points people to the Father. He brings the Father glory. Um, to be honest, though, I'm kind of simplifying things here. I could do a whole sermon on glory. Um, but the gist of it, the basic idea, is that the Messiah, Jesus, will bring glory to God with his birth, with his life, with his death. And in his resurrection, he will point people to the Father. So the angels talk about glory. They also talk about peace on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Um, we're kind of used to the King James translation of the ver this verse because that's the translation that we sing in several Christmas carols. On earth, peace, goodwill towards men, right? Peace on the earth, goodwill to men. Um, I, understand, I understand that King James translation, but honestly, I think other translations make it a little bit more clear. The King James almost sounds like God is giving peace and goodwill to men, or peace is his goodwill to men. However, that's not what the angels are announcing. They're not announcing that this peace is for everyone. What they're announcing 
is peace for God's people. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Or peace on whom his favor rests is what the NIV says. So this peace is for his people, the people who have chosen to make their lives about him. They are the people that God delights in. It's us. Psalm 147 verse 11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. It's us. It's us who choose to follow him. That's who this peace is for. But what does this peace actually mean? Well, the Greek word for peace here literally means quietness and rest. But the angels are also announcing the coming of the Messiah. And what does the Old Testament tell us about the Messiah? What is the prophecy of the Old Testament? Well, let's look at Isaiah 9, 6. I'm sure we're all familiar with this passage. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So Isaiah is saying here, uh, the Messiah is going to be born as a male child, a son, right? To us, a son is given. And he's also saying that this child will be born in Israel. Unto us, a child is born. Um, And he will also be called the Prince of Peace, this passage says. That's exactly what the angels are talking about in Luke, right? But why is Jesus called the Prince of Peace? Well, Isaiah tells us in the next verse. Let's look at verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Isaiah says that this Messiah... The Prince of Peace will rule and will bring peace forever. Well, what kind of peace? Certainly the references to the government and to David's kingdom refer to an earthly rule. So will he bring an end to wars and global chaos? He will, right? Eventually he will. But in Luke, the angels declare that he will bring peace to whom he is well pleased, meaning just his people. So who's right? Is Isaiah right in saying the Messiah will bring the kind of peace that means an end to wars and strife all over the earth? Or are the angels right in saying that this peace, this quietness and rest is what the Greek says, is just for his people? Well, they're both right. That's why he's the Prince of Peace, He's going to bring all kinds of peace, not just in an earthly, physical sense, but in a much deeper way. I want to look um, at why Jesus needs to bring this peace. So Isaiah talks about peace in an earthly sense, and we know why we need that peace. We can look around us and see unrest everywhere, right? Um, But why do we need the peace that the angels are talking about? Let's look at Matthew 1, 21. It says, you are to name him Jesus. This is the angel talking to Joseph. For he will save his people from their sins. 
And what does sin cause in people's lives? Look at what David says after his whole ordeal with Bathsheba and Uriah, Psalm 32. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Definitely does not sound like a person who has any kind of peace in their lives, does it? So what does sin do? Sin robs us of peace. In Romans 1, Paul tells us exactly what happens when people choose themselves over God. Let me read it. Verse 28 says, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Verse 29, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. These are not people full of peace. Sin robs us of peace. Sin robs us of something else as well. Let's look at 1 John 1 verse 1. That which we have seen, John says, and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, We lie and do not practice the truth. So sin robs us of peace, but sin does something else to it. It also hinders our fellowship with God. Not our relationship. Our relationship is is secure in Christ. If we are truly followers of Jesus, then we are children of God. No one can change that. But our fellowship or our communion with God, our interaction with God, is changed in a bad way when we sin. Let me give you an example. If a husband cheats on his wife, she's still his wife for the time being, but their interaction is going to change, right? All sorts of things related to their fellowship or their interaction will change. She won't trust him anymore. She will question his love for her. Um, He will know that the trust is gone, and he's going to act differently with her. Their interaction or their fellowship will not be the same, and that's what sin does. It separates and it hinders fellowship, and not just fellowship with God, fellowship with others as well. So what does this say about peace? It means that we cannot have peace without God. In Colossians, Paul spends the first few chapters trying to explain and remind the Colossians what Jesus has done and and what making him Lord of their lives actually means. And in chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, he says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, 
put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So because of Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. We are able to have peace with God and with ourselves because of what he's done. He's taken away the guilt and the shame, right? He's washed us clean before God so that we can approach him in prayer. We can have fellowship with him. But here in Colossians, Paul makes it, makes it clear, peace is not our right. We still have to choose it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Paul says. So how do we do that? How do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? Well, what does it say in the previous verse? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with each other and forgive one another. So we need to choose peace by living it out, by confessing our sins to God, by confessing our sins to each other. And forgiving each other when we are sinned against. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but He's not forcing it down anyone's throat. It's still our choice to live in peace. And that could be that can be a hard concept for, for us to accept, right? If if we're stressed out and we don't know why, or we just don't have peace and we don't know why. In those situations, we've got to ask God, why am I so anxious or why am I so stressed out? Please reveal to me the reason so that I can work out what you're working in in me so I can deal with it. All right, let's go back to the angels. When they say, for unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Messiah, and they sing, peace among those with whom God is well-pleased, They're saying this Prince of Peace is going to usher in a peace in a way that has never been known before. Peace because our sins will be forgiven and the guilt and the shame that comes from sin will be gone. Peace because real fellowship with God will be possible. That's never been possible to individuals before, to have real fellowship and interaction with God. And it starts here. With physical fellowship, the shepherds can actually go and see the Messiah with their own eyes. Maybe they can even touch him and kiss his head. And as he grows up and becomes a man, people can shake his hand and talk to him and be his friend. They will see God face to face. And that's never been possible before. Moses could barely look at the back of God as he walked past him. So the angels are not just announcing the birth of the Messiah, they're announcing a new way of life, free from the chains of sin, free from the anxiety and the stress of the circumstances of life, and full of freedom to commune with God. The temple curtain is going to be torn in two. No more barrier between God and man, because the Messiah is here. He's come to do so many things. He's come to help us better understand who God is by living it out in front of us. He's come to be our savior. He's come to free us from sin 
And in doing so, he's come to bring peace to us and through us. So that's the song of the angels. Excuse me, but now I want to look at how we should respond to this song. Let's look at the shepherds. Let's look at how they responded. The angels finished their announcement and their song. The angels finished their announcement and their song of praise, and how did the shepherds respond? They respond in awe. They are filled with wonder about these things, right? And they don't even know what to do, so they just go back to taking care of their sheep, right? No. No, what does it say? It It says... They had ears to, well, it doesn't say that, it's, but they did. They had ears to hear. The angel told them what to look for and what to see this was all about, and they had ears to hear. I'm sure they didn't understand immediately what was happening. I mean, it must have been pretty overwhelming to be staring up in the sky full of angels and to be hearing the most beautiful song you've ever heard in your life. But they did hear that message. They knew that this wasn't just an announcement for for no reason. God chose them to be one of the first to hear the good news. The Messiah has come. So there are three things we can learn here from the shepherd's response. Number one, what did the shepherds do? They responded in faith. The shepherds heard the announcement, they heard the song, and they didn't just sit on it, they went. They received the revelation from God and they responded to it. They don't question like Zechariah, who we heard about last week. He was a priest, and he says, come on, Gabriel, that can't be true. And Gabriel basically says, who do you think I am? Why else have I come here? I'm an angel, I stand in the presence of God, giving messages directly from God is my job. I'm not here to play cards, Zechariah. I'm here to give you a message from God. The shepherds, on the other hand, immediately say to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. It's funny, though, because they don't exactly know where to go. They know that he's in Bethlehem. They know that he's lying in an animal's feeding trough in a manger, but that's really not much to go off. And I think this shows us a lot about their faith. They trusted the angels, they got caught up in the excitement, and they just went. Can you imagine like 30 shepherds super excited with maybe with their shepherd's rods in their hand running into Bethlehem? Have you seen a baby in a feeding trough? I'm sure it was a strange sight to see. (laughs) But they believed and they went. They sought out that baby, and that's faith. We don't always get the details. God says, follow me. We don't always know exactly what to do or where to go even. He just says, seek me and you will find me. Work out what I'm working in, in you. With faith, There has to be initiative and effort on our end. There has to be a response. Faith is not stationary. Faith has movement. 
There is doing. There's sometimes a going as well. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith. We walk. We walk by faith, not by sight. Number two. The second thing we can learn from the shepherd's response to the angel's message is that they proclaimed what they had seen. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby, and verse 17 says they told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. They hear the message, they respond in faith, they go, and what is the fruit of their proclamation? God is glorified, right? Verse 18, all, the sh- all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. And the shepherds have now become the messengers of God. They are now proclaiming the good news. They are glorifying God in the highest. And it is now the hearer's responsibility to respond to the shepherd's message. Do these people hear the shepherd's testimony? And go see the baby for themselves? We don't know. Maybe they did. But the proper response of all who hear the revelation of God is to believe it, because if it's coming from God, it's truth, and to act, to respond in faith, and then to proclaim it. And there's another fruit that comes from the shepherd's proclamation, and that's this, the witness of their witness or their testimony about what the angels said and what they've seen and heard was an encouragement and a confirmation to Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph had had their own angelic encounters nine or ten months ago, but you know how it is. Time goes by. We forget. We sometimes think, is that really what I saw or is that really what happened? Unfortunately, as imperfect people in an imperfect world, it's easy to let doubt come into our minds. Did that really happen the way I remembered it? But God wanted to reaffirm to Mary and Joseph through the shepherds, this is really the Messiah. The message I sent with the angels who visited you you, has become reality. Isn't that so like God? The shepherds are not only witnesses of the angel's announcement, they are an encouragement and a confirmation to Mary and Joseph about what God has done. There's so many layers here, and it all fits together. I could do a whole other sermon just on this. That's that's what God does. He uses one event to do so many different things in so many different people's lives. Anyway, the shepherds... Witness to God is an encouragement and confirmation to Mary and Joseph. And what does verse 19 say? Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Our witness or our proclamation about God's revelation and what he's done is an encouragement to others. That's why we need to share our testimony with each other because it's what God has done in your life. And, and it really is an encouragement to others. So the shepherds responded in faith. They proclaimed what they had seen. And the third thing they did was they praised God. Verse 20, the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen 
It was just as the angel had told them. This is the same word here used as used for the angel's praise. Ennio is the Greek word to praise, to extol, to sing to God is the definition of this Greek word. Maybe they even sang the same song, the shepherds, as the angels sang to them. Maybe they remembered it. And like the angels, they couldn't contain themselves. They couldn't hold it in. Just as Jesus explains at his entrance to Jerusalem, if they don't praise, the rocks are going to cry out. This is the most glorious and important event in human history. And the shepherds have been honored by being one of the first to hear about the Messiah. And the way they hear is just overwhelming. I'm sure they were overwhelmed with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for blessing us with this honor. Thank you for sending the Messiah. And thank you for letting us, lowly shepherds, participate and see for ourselves. So I want to point out a pattern in these Songs of Arrival sermons, this series we're doing. Mary also had a message from an angel. She also responded with faith, proclamation, and praise, just like the shepherds. She says to the angel after he delivers his message, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She receives the revelation, she believes it, and she also takes action. She goes. Where does she go? She goes to Elizabeth, right? And her song is both a proclamation and a praise. That song she sings in Luke 1. I mean, I'm sure she sat down with Elizabeth and explained everything that happened, but her song is filled with what God has done and will do And she gives him all the glory. Glory to God in the highest, right? Zechariah is a little different. He doesn't believe at first. But you know what? God has mercy on him. And through the closing of his mouth and the very real pregnant wife in front of him, he does come to believe that what Gabriel has said was truth. He doesn't go anywhere, but he does respond eventually with faith. The angel had told him to name the baby John, and as soon as Zechariah directs this to happen, his name shall be John, he says, his mouth is opened, and he immediately begins to what? Proclaim and praise. So today's passage in Luke 2, sorry, in today's passage in Luke 2, we saw the shepherds respond in faith, we saw them respond in proclamation, and we see them respond in praise. But actually, we see the angels do that as well. They are sent, they obey and go, they proclaim the news that Jesus is the Messiah, and then they praise So this is our model for how to respond to the revelation of God. When God works in us, we need to do exactly what Paul tells the Philippian believers to do in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Basically, work out what God is working in you. Respond with faith. Work it out. And then proclaim what he has done. We tell others, this is what God is doing in my life, or this is what God has done in my life. Responding in faith comes first. 
but I don't think proclaiming and praise needs to be in a particular order. This isn't a formula. We can praise God for what He's doing in us before we proclaim it, right? We can respond in faith, praise, um, proclaim, and then praise again after that. Like I said, it's not a formula, but breaking it down into these three responses I think is helpful for us to be able to understand how to respond to God's revelation. So there you have it. Just like the angels, just like the shepherds, just like Mary and Zechariah, we respond in faith, we proclaim what God has done and, and is doing in our lives, and we praise Him for it. Let's pray.